This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. David, before we start our podcast, do you know what Feedspot is? Well, I didn't know until I read an email we'd received about Feedspot, which goes about discovering and ranking popular blogs and podcasts like ours. And do you know what they ranked us as? Tell me, Jen. Absolutely. Well, we ranked one of the top 35 in Australia. So we better stop talking and let you listen. Get on with the show. Thanks, Jan. Robin Gregory's book is called Traffic, but it's not about cars on the road. Welcome, Robin. Hi, nice to be here. Well, Robin, let's start from the very beginning of your book, Traffic. Would you read that first section, please? Blood oozed from her neck and formed a mini lake around her body. The wound was open and you could see what you're not meant to see in a person. Some kind of tissue, maybe muscle. I used to be immune to gruesome scenes, or so I told myself. This image was going to be etched in my brain like the murdered man I'd discovered last year. His smashed-in face continued to flash into my mind, especially on the cusp of sleep. That wasn't the worst part. His mother's hollow eyes had torn my heart apart. After that case, I'd sworn I'd never investigate another homicide, if only I'd remembered. (laughs) So who is this person? So Sandy Kent is a, a private investigator in her late 20s. She's fit, fiery and brave, sometimes quite recklessly so. And she lives with a tortoise shell cat in a flat in Melbourne's western suburbs. And she supplements her unpredictable PI income by teaching swimming part-time, though she still struggles to make ends meet Mm -hmm. and is desperate from some straightforward cases after that previous being traumatised by discovery. She has a variety of friends who appear through this book and some of them have been old sexual partners. One of them is Maria. What does Maria do now and why has she contacted Sandy? Yeah, well, Maria, a good friend of Sandy's, yes, and and previous love interest, is a solicitor and offers Sandy some cases. And this time she's contacted Sandy uh, about a case of a Colombian guy, Ricardo, who has been charged with the murder of a sex worker and she is representing him and wanting to develop some defence angles, so she's contacted Sandy around that. Yeah, Maria knows, this is a quote from your book, Sandy has a gift for making people say more than they want. But this Ricardo, he's got a missing fiancé and now a sex worker murderer and he's not forthcoming with, with information. Another quote, I was helping to defend a serial killer. Two women had been murdered by this bastard. Hang on, keep an open mind. So we do learn a little bit about Ricardo. We, he has a sister with children and very threatening cousins. So it's very hard for Sandy to get information and she uses interesting techniques. This this murder occurred in a brothel. So look, Robin Gregory, this was this was just wonderful. How does Sandy get into the brothel? Yes, so she 
she waits for uh, one of the punters to go in and follows him in and then says that she believes her husband is in there. So she's she's in a disguise and she has followed this bloke in, seen what he looked like and, and you know, described him. It convinces them that she's waiting for him to come out. So they all are scurrying around trying to find this man and get him out so that she, they can get rid of her as well. So it gives her a chance to chat with a few people about the murder that happened there while they're trying to find Bruce, her husband. <laughs> Seven years ago, Maria had to console Sandy when she was dumped by Cassie. And Maria called Cassie trouble typed all over her. But Cassie's come back into Sandy's life. Why is this? Yes, well, Cassie contacts Sandy saying that she's working at an organisation called the Fair Sex Coalition, which is an organisation that supports women who've been sex trafficked. And she wants Sandy's help to rescue uh, a sex slave who is trapped in an illegal brothel. So that, that is the reason that she contacts. Sandy actually thinks that it might be for reasons of, you know, explaining why she disappeared seven years ago without an explanation. But no, it's it's actually to get her to help her. So Sandy does a lot of private investigation, which requires a lot of sitting and looking and waiting and watching. And she's outside a brothel and she sees a line of scantily dressed women come out and then go into this big black van, 30 seconds for 14 women to pile in. Sandy does some incredible driving to keep up with this big black van. So where does she follow this van to? The first time she follows it, she can't find where's it, where it goes. But the second time, she's more prepared and uh, it heads into the city to an apartment block where those women are, are kept, basically. And so it's at that moment she's had doubts about whether Cassie's story is really true. But at that moment, she realises that it, it really is and that those women are trapped. And she discovers the apartment that they're in and even finds evidence that they have written in the lift a word help to try and help them escape. This black van also leads her to another brothel and also to the home of Madame Kwa Zeng, the particularly nice house in Ivanhoe. So this sex trafficking, very profitable business with minimal salary overheads. She also follows the driver of this big black van into the big player's room in the casino. Now, Rob and Gregory, they're betting big numbers there. Is that true? They are. As part of my research, I went to the casino and found out more about it and read quite a lot. So, yes, the, the amounts that people actually gamble are quite phenomenal. So it's, it wouldn't be surprising at all that somebody in this position with access to huge amounts of money, as you said, with very little overheads involved, could be spending phenomenal amounts in a casino. Sandy uses a variety of spycraft mechanics. She's got a camera with a telephoto lens. But tell me about her glasses. I thought they were pretty ingenious. Yes, so she's got these glasses which actually have a camera uh, in them. And when she's in the brothel for the first time, uh, trying to find out what happened 
with Ricardo and the murdered sex worker, she uses her glasses to snap photos of those involved in in the brothel who she believes are witnesses to the crime. Like most private investigators, they do need somebody on the other side of law. And Sandy has a friend from basketball days. Alice, who does she work? Alice is a police officer. And yes, she she quietly assists Sandy with uh, with information about various things. And in this case, you know, partly procedural, which is often very helpful because it's hard to know that sort of thing if you're not involved in the police force yourself. And also about some of the players involved. So she's able to supply Sandy with some information about them. Well, this all takes place three weeks before Christmas, as from the book, Sandy's shoved out in the rain by her ex-girlfriend, mauled by a sumo wrestler and threatened by a murderer. But there's also family pressures on Sandy too. What are these? Yeah, she's got a complex family and her trying to organise Christmas is just really complicated, so... You know, she loves her mum, but that is a fairly fraught relationship, partly, Sandy believes, because of her sexuality, but partly because of their family history. And she has a very fraught relationship with her sister who won't allow Sandy or her mum really to have anything to do with her children, and that is the source of of much dispute uh, for Sandy. So, yes, trying to to organise Christmas is as it can be sometimes, is really very difficult. And Sandy really wants it. She really wants to be see her nieces for Christmas. On a lighter side, we have Spanish language and cats and the best he called Stuart, has, who has his own relationship problems, but does like to share a, a pizza and a beer with Sandy. And lots of Melbourne suburbs. Sandy knows her way around Preston and Thornbury, bars in Brunswick Street and Ackland Street, and how many times she crosses that Westgate Bridge. My goodness. The story came about from your own experiences of helping a sex slave. That's right, yes. When I worked in community health, a woman came into the health centre and my background social work and I was expecting somebody who might have experienced, you know, a fairly regular family violence situation, but I was really shocked when she disclosed that she had been bought and brought to Australia and married to a man to solely be his sex slave. And luckily the one thing that she was allowed to do was to go to church. And there she met uh, a friend who actually helped her to escape. So they came in and she pointed across the road to this black car that was sitting opposite and said that her husband had hired somebody to find her and that was a pretty terrifying moment for us all obviously for her particularly but for the workers who were involved we were all pretty nervous about it and because of her visa status she came from an Asian country it was actually really difficult to find her a refuge to go to and it really took some convincing for them to take her on but eventually they did Mm. and she was escorted to that refuge by the police because that black car remained outside the health health centre the whole time. From research that I've done and talking to somebody at uh, 
um, Project Respect, which is the organisation in Melbourne that does support survivors of sex trafficking, really both the women themselves and the workers are fairly reluctant to go to the police because women's stories, when they're sexually assaulted, those stories are dismissed and the, the women are blamed for what's happened. Sometimes women, when they're sex trafficked, actually realise they're going in to work in a brothel and they may have lied about their visa status. So they're very nervous about actually going to the police and explaining what's happened and trying to find the evidence to actually prove it is very difficult for those women. Well, Robin Gregory, Sandy Kent first featured in a short story which was shortlisted in Sisters in Crime Scarlet Stiletto Awards. So how would you describe Sisters in Crime? Yeah, Sisters in Crime has been really important to me and I think important to many women crime writers. So Sisters in Crime is an international organisation, but there's an Australian chapter and a very strong chapter in Melbourne. So it really supports women crime writers to write and promotes a love of reading women crime writers. So they have you know, awards for short stories, they they have awards for novels and they have many events to promote crime writing. Well, this might be a good time just to mention something that's coming up for Sisters in Crime. It's the 15th Law Week event, Witness for the Prosecution, Supporting Survivors of Sexual Assault. So, and there's an expert panel. There's Louise Milligan, who, was, who wrote the book about Cardinal, The Rise and Fall of George Pell, and Witness, which is shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Jane Patrick, a retired court judge, and Michelle Williams, who heads up the Specialist Sexual Offence Unit at the Office of Public Prosecutions, and Rachel Spencer. Look, they'll all be discussing experiences of sexual assault in their journey through the Australian legal system. So this is an event is free to watch through YouTube from Friday the 21st of May. Best to go into Sisters in Crime and read about it, but it does sound most interesting. Well, you've got private investigators have to use discretion, spycraft, endless patience and self-preservation to get results. Sandy Kent needs all of these to crack cases of sexual slavery in the suburbs of Melbourne in Robin Gregory's traffic. Thank you very much, Robin. Thanks so much, Jan. And now it's David's turn. Sometimes the expectations we set for ourselves are simply not a recognition of who we truly are. Such is the case for Devon Destry, the main protagonist in Stuart Everly Wilson's novel, Low Expectations. So Stuart, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Now, Devon is a rather unique individual and he's the narrator of this story. I begin to record the history of it all because if I don't, I will explode, leaving nothing to tell of me but a pile of ash. In this history, I'll try to leave nothing out, but I'll also be careful not to incorporate any extraneous unnecessary shit like objectivity. Objectivity is for those who don't have a point to make or a side to take. There is only one side to this story, and that's mine. So quite a definite character you have here. 
Yeah, thanks, David. He is. Um, it was a very strong voice in my head. It was probably the strength of that voice that got me writing again. I hadn't written for 10 years and I, I, I can't explain where the voice came from. Let's go into that a little more. He has cerebral palsy. Now, what gave you the inspiration to look at a character with uh, that disability? Look, I guess really it came out of the fact that at the time I started writing Low Expectations, I'd just come out of 10 years' employment in the disability sector. So I guess that was the reason that um, he so readily took cerebral palsy as a character. To write a novel, it's a long time, and it was my first one, and it took me six years to write. And I guess the heart wants what the heart wants, and that's true for the characters that uh, take life on the page. And his cerebral palsy made him very interesting to me, along with the other aspects of his personality, his fierceness, his great hair, the a conflicted relationship he had with his mother and, of course, the surroundings that he was growing up in. And um, it made him very easy to stick with for six years because it was an awful lot of work. Let's tease out the cerebral palsy a little because often those with a disability can get away with a lot more than those without a disability? Um, well, look, you'd really have to ask someone with a disability, I guess, about that. Devon is a very cunning young man and he's had a fairly, he's had a traumatic kind of experience that's pushed him over as a young boy. And as a result of that, he's needed to kind of shut down. He's become hard of speaking. He's gone into an intensely... A, a, a place of self-preservation. and uh, But, of course, he has a, a, a very natural cunning and he's able to fool those that he needs to. When he needs to fool someone, he can do it if it means that it's going to make him feel safer or to help get his own way. He becomes more sophisticated in some of the, the scams he pulls off as he comes into adolescence and re-enters the um, education system because he's homeschooled for two years. He is actually extraordinarily intelligent and this comes out in the books he has read that no one expects him to have read, Great Expectations and Animal Farm. Yes, well they're, they're gifts from his dear friend Krennic who lives in the a uh, house that backs on to Devon and his mother Tina's place. And Krennic has largely taken care of Devon's homeschooling when he dropped out of primary school. It was Krennic's favourite book, Great Expectations, and they've gone through it together. He's been educated in that book. And, of course, in the story as well, Krennic's gifted him for his birthday a copy of Animal Farm. And... This is kind of put Devon in a kind of conflicted place because he wants to play dumb 
but he's far from dumb and he's got these you know, quite sophisticated reading habits. And as, of course, happens in the story as well, he begins to write as well. What you've also got there is, well, Great Expectations gives you the opportunity to come up with a title for your book, Low Expectations, but it's yes. in the characters that Devon actually identifies with that I think is quite telling. He identifies with the cat, in Animal Farm and Magwitch in Great Expectations. And there's a reason for that. Yes, there is. There is. Well, he likes the cat in Animal Farm because the cat has the kind of instinct at self-preservation that Devon finds very attractive. And as far as Magwitch goes, well, he's got a particular reason for really loving Magwitch I don't think I'll mention it now, but it's in the book and it's later in the book and you discover that really it's tied up with his friendship, his deep friendship with Krennic and a, a certain role that Devon's played with Krennic throughout the story. But it's fascinating and because it's not necessarily the conventional characters that the ordinary reader would identify with, but it does give an insight into Devon's character and mindset but there's another thing here there's an element compelling the narrative and that is the fact that his mother was raped and he wants to find his father now this is quite a challenging area for you to deal with yes I guess it is I can't tell you where the story came from David I really can't I mean I sat down one day and I thought, I'm going to put this character, this character's voice that was in my head down on paper and see what it's like. And I spat out a first draft in about eight weeks and it was a very intense experience for me. And really the story told itself to me it's a very raw story of the times. It's set in 1975. The language used is not language that we use today generally. And it's set in a time when things were just a, a little rougher. And um, certainly I grew up in the neighbourhood depicted in the story. And so a lot of the feel in the novel is, is very well informed by my own childhood. But these other aspects, the fact that Devon's mother is raped, has been raped. This is fiction that's pulled itself out of me as I really hammered out this first draft of a story. I had no idea where it was going to go. And because I've never been published and because I never anticipated this being published. You also take on a number of other confronting issues there's the molestation of the disabled. There's gender identity. I mean, these are quite confronting, controversial topics. Yes, well, I, I guess they are. He's an adolescent boy. He's not an appropriate... There's a lot of uh, behaviours that he indulges in that aren't appropriate particularly, but um, I guess they are controversial. Um, I wasn't making any point in the, in the novel at all. I was just simply telling a story 
as, um, uh, well, as truthfully as I could, uh, telling a fiction as believably and as truthfully as I could, I guess. Well, it does come across like that because Devon is actually, well, the mainstay, but there are two sides to him. He's out for revenge, which is another factor in his character, but he's also very understanding and considerate towards characters like Big Tammy, who's a girl with a profound disability, but his instincts are to help her. So he's got this dual nature to him in some ways. Yes, indeed. Indeed. He's, there's a lot of bluster with Devon and a lot of bravado, but he loves Big Tammy and he's not always been the most reliable friend to her and he acknowledges that at a certain point in the story and he realises that what's happened to her is a result of his own feud with a, uh, a boy that lives in the same street as he does and attends the same school and it becomes Devon's mission to take down this bully and so one of the most interesting aspects of the story to me is the plan that he launches into to humiliate this really ghastly alpha bully. I think we've all known them in school. And certainly what happens to Tammy happens in the school. And um, I know that you are sent to school to be safe, but the reality is that quite often kids aren't safe in school and ghastly things can take place if teachers aren't taking notice well, of what's happening well, in their playgrounds and um, playing fields and, and whatever. Particularly, I don't know now so much about school now, of course, but I remember school in the 70s very well. You do give us an insight into what takes place in school. Those that get overlooked in the system, but also then those students who we think are incapable. And yet, as you say, Devon's quite capable of coming up with a scheme to humiliate his rival, to get revenge. But also then there's that quest to find his father and to find who raped his mother, but also then yeah. to appreciate his own <laughs> expectations and to realise the full extent of his intelligence. So the book is Low Expectations. The author is Stuart Everly Wilson, and it's a text publishing release. So Stuart, thank you very much for talking with me today. Uh, look, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.